Well, if you are a guest here, I just want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. I'm going to ask all of you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 78. If you uh, don't have uh, God's Word in your hands right now or on your phone, there should be a one in a seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. We think it's critically important for all of us to be invested in our heart and our life in God's Word. And so if you don't have one, please take that with you. But we're in Psalm chapter 78 on a series called A Life of Worship, which we're doing this summer, looking at uh, different platforms where we invest uh, quantities of time while we're here on this earth and how God has really created those things to be leveraged uh, to become a platform to be able to worship him and to help other people to uh, see him as worthy of their life as well. And so uh, we're uh, up to a really important one, which is when we consider um, that there's little people, okay, children on the earth. And what is our investment in their lives? Uh, there's a verse, uh, whole church family that we're uh, seeking this month to memorize. And so let's go ahead and practice that uh, as a church family. You ready? Here we go. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And why this is important to memorize is God's word tells us He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When you have God's word within our heart, it serves like an anchor or like a hook to which we can literally hang our life on and be reminded of truth when we're in the midst of times to where we can get really distracted about why we're doing what we're doing. And so this passage really speaks to the fact of whatever it is that you're doing, whatever occupation that you have, whether you're a father, a mother, an engineer, an architect, whether you're writing sermons or sweeping floors, that God has literally created it. So if we are attentive to who he is and our work is in response to his worth and to his work on the cross, then Jesus literally reckons, he accounts that work as unto him as an act of worship, which is a remarkable thing, that we're serving the Lord Christ in everything that we do. And so as we get started, though, here in Psalm chapter 78, I want to pray for us, okay? Father, as we open up your amazing book, um, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that it points us to you, that we can see the glorious deeds of the Lord and your might and your wonders, things that you've done. And I pray, God, that you would speak through weakness in myself and you would speak through distractions in each of our lives and that you would literally burn Psalm chapter 78 into our heart, that we would literally love what we read because what we read points us to you. And so help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even prior to reading Psalm 78, I want to point you to a day that's coming. I think it's important for us to know this day that's coming. And it is a certain day. God himself says that he is going to see this day come to pass. And we read this day in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. This is what it says. It says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters shall cover the sea or as the waters as they cover the sea. Now, the sea is so big, it's hard to really picture the sea and picture this verse. And so so let's shrink it down to maybe the size of our own imagination. Let's think about a fish tank, okay? A fish tank. It's about this big. And 
And just for help, make sure you know what a fish tank is. There it is, okay? Not, not, okay. Now, let's just say that you have a job, and your job is to fill it with water. There's no fish in there. There's no water. But there is the little plants, and there are the little pebbles and the rocks, and everything's in there. And as you're filling it, what you're noticing is that water is literally rushing and running and consuming every gap and every crevice. Every hole is being filled. And everything within the tank is being surrounded by water. And if all of those pebbles and all of those fake plants, if they all had a heart and a mind and a soul and were conscious of what was going on, they would be aware that water is literally surrounding them in every direction. Now, if you can imagine that, you can imagine what is going to take place one day here on this earth, that God says, I am working to see this take place. And that is the day when God's glory literally rushes in and the knowledge of his glory literally fills every single gap and every crack and every crevice throughout the entire earth. Where his presence is the very pleasure of every single human heart and where his son, Jesus Christ, is receiving the unrivaled worship of every single human soul. This day is going to come to pass. And until the water of his glory rises to that level, he's called us, the church, to demonstrate his glory and to worship him and to be consciously aware of his glory as it surrounds us in the hopes that other people, in the way that we live our life, and in the way that, in this case, that we even invest in the next generation, that would lead them to want to worship the Lord as well. And so here this morning, if you'd have children or if you don't have children, you may be a child. And this may all be fitting. In fact, it is. It's, it's fitting for all of us. That whatever it is that God has given to us, he intends for us to be able to impart and to give as a gift to the next generation. And so let's read what he says in the first eight verses of Psalm chapter 78. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, as we consider the investment that we can make as parents or as a church family into the spiritual vitality of the next generation, it can be a daunting thing. I have my oldest son, he's about to be a junior. And that thought of how much he doesn't know about life and how much he needs to know in a short amount of time weighs upon me. And one of the beauties about Psalm chapter 78 is Asaph, the writer, literally releases the tension from us as parents. He says, it's true there are things that we need to teach. 
And as a church, there are things that we need to teach. But children need two things more than all. And if you can give them the two, and we can give them the two, if you can give them the two, you will have given what is sufficient. So what are these two? The first is this, is the next generation must be pointed towards the ways of God. Towards the ways of God. I want you to notice what he says. In verse 1, he basically says, I need you to listen to me. He says, give me your ear, incline your heart. Listen, I'm about to say something really important. And then he gets to verse 2, and what he says is, I'm going to speak here in Psalm chapter 78. I'm going to give you a parable, and then I'm going to talk in dark sayings. Now, let's talk about each of those two. Okay, A parable is a story with intent. It's a, it's a story that literally has at its end kind of a life lesson, a spiritual truth that's intended to be imparted. The other one, he says, is a dark saying from of old. Now, for us in English, that looks like something that's evil or something that's, that's um, you know, light is, is what we see within Scripture, something that's pleasant and that's, and that's godly and dark is something that's evil. And that's not necessarily what he's saying here. Dark in some places of the Bible literally means unanswered. It's a mystery. Things that people have been asking for a long, long, long period of time, but no one has been clever enough or creative enough in order to identify the answer. In other words, it's a riddle. So what he says here is, in this psalm, I'm going to give you a parable and I'm going to speak to you in a riddle. Now, what's a riddle? A riddle is a question that really demands a level of creativity in order to identify its answer. Every riddle has as its aim a collective O once people get the answer to the riddle. So let's practice, okay? What's a seven-letter word that contains thousands of letters? The answer is a mailbox, right? Okay, you just did it. Okay? You just went, oh, yeah, okay. That's a riddle, okay? Psalm 78 is supposed to get us to do that. He says, I'm going to speak to you in a parable. I'm going to give you a word picture, an actual picture that has a spiritual truth. And I'm going to speak to you about a riddle that literally maybe has never been answered in the history of the world. And what's interesting is you read through the entire psalm and you find neither a story or a riddle. What you find is the history of man's sin in Israel and God's mercy towards Israel. I want to read some of these verses to you, okay? Look at verse 12. It starts with God's mercy. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. Now look at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him. Verse 23. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their sin. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Verse 44 to verse 55, he literally talks about God's mighty acts that he's performed in the Exodus when he, when he rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them out into a good land, a safe land. And notice how they responded in verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. You say, okay, now, 
Go back to the parable and the riddle thing. I will. The ultimate riddle that he's seeking to portray in Psalm 78 is two. The first riddle is how in the world is it possible for our heart to be so stubborn towards God? And the second riddle is how is it possible for God to be so merciful towards us? We still don't have an answer to either one of those. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought why it is that you've confessed the same sin twice or 200 times or 2,000 times? Why is it that we sin against God, he forgives us, and instead of running from it and never being inclined to go back to that kind of attitude or those kind of words or that kind of action again, we find ourselves rebelling and being stubborn again and again and again. That's a tremendous riddle that no one has ever been able truly to understand. Oh, there's truth. We can say, well, we were born with sin and we have a heart bent, but why? You get all the way back and you look at yourself in the mirror and you ask yourself, why do you keep doing that? And you never speak back and say, well, this is why. It's a riddle. And what's maybe more amazing than that is that the holy God of the universe, a greater riddle is why does he, in spite of his holiness and justice and righteousness, continue to pour out his mercy towards us who continually choose to be stubborn towards him. You see, he's puzzled and amazed and startled by the mercy of God that he continues to write about throughout this story. And he feels it's absolutely imperative that his children and the next generation are also puzzled and amazed and startled by the mercy of God. And so he says in verse four, we need to tell this to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord is might and the wonders that he has done. You see, what he's saying is children must be told the hero of the story. The hero of the story. You see, it's amazing um, how quickly we forget the hero of the story. Now, let me just make sure we understand this. Every single one of us is sort of a page in the story of life. Right? Meaning you can be heroic in something you do in life. Folks look at you and go, wow, that was courage. That was heroic. But you have to understand this is that that page is literally placed into a big book, a big story, which is the story that literally encompasses all of our lives and all the lives who've ever lived and literally what God is doing in all of our lives. And in that big story, there's only one hero. Which makes things that we see on the earth even more puzzling. On Monday this week. Uh, I saw a young girl, probably uh, maybe 19, 20, something like that. And she had on her shoulder a little tattoo. It was words. And I read it. And this is what it said. It said, I am the hero of this story. And as I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking about the different things that this individual is going to go through in life for which she will identify very quickly that she's not the hero of this part of the story. You see, you and I, we all love stories that showcase the triumph of the human will. That's why we love the Olympics. Watching the commercial of that one girl, I don't know where she's even from, but her and her family, they're 
in a life raft and she gets out and literally gets a rope around her and swims like 16 miles to save her family. Now she's an Olympic swimmer. Like we love stories like that. The triumph of the human will. We're like, yeah, that's awesome. But you have to understand something. Every time your page reads of an act to where you've been heroic, it's only when you and I or someone else has resembled and reflected the one true hero over it all. You see, the Bible tells us that there's only one story and it begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and he created you in his image. He created this world in which that we can live, a beautifully complex world that's supposed to point to him and his greatness. He then created other people in his image and gave us the capacity to have friendships and relationships with them so that we could know them and be known by them. And be encouraged mutually. Then the Bible gave us, or then God gave us instruction in order to protect us and provide us with guidance. And then we come to our part of the story. It's real short. We rebelled. And so then God, he comes back on the scene and God makes promises that he's going to send the Savior, a Messiah who's going to come. He then sends prophets in order to tell us a little bit more about what to look for, who to look for, where he's going to be born, and what's he going to do. And then God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth, and he died on a cross. He was buried in a grave, and he rose from the dead. And he gave us an invitation that if we would believe in him, we would be forgiven of our sin and adopted into his family. And then God gives us his spirit so that we can live a new kind of life with a new kind of power. God creates the church and assembles us together with the church so that we can be on mission with him and that we can be mutually encouraging to each other. And at the end of the story, God comes back and he makes all things new to where the knowledge of his glory literally fills the entire earth. Listen, we are not the hero of this story. He is the hero of the story. And assuming that we are the hero of life is as silly as assuming that we are fellow Olympians because we ate nachos while they swam. We're not the hero. He's the hero. And our children must know who the hero is. So the application is let's be willing to sacrifice to help the next generation see God. It requires sacrifice to do what he tells us to do. You see, Providence, I love making memories. I love my family. I love making memories with them. I like memories with you. I, I, I love memories. I love traditions. I love holidays. But listen, If our children were able to only retain one memory of their entire childhood from both our families and our church, we should want it to be this, that they remember God. That they remember God, not pie or roller coasters or candles. God, that they remember God. He's the hero of the story. If they could only remember one thing, that is the memory we would want them to have. You see, listen, there's so many kids 
There's so many kids that walk away from God when they walk away from our homes. I want to tell you one thing your kids are never going to walk away from. Water. You know why? Because they come to learn at an early age that water matters. Water is consequential. You have to have it to live. So they're never going to walk away from water. See, our heart, like a magnet, it's turned in the right direction. It literally magnetizes our heart to what ultimately matters, what is consequential. And that's why we're never going to leave water. But if our kids don't see God as consequential, then like a magnet that is reversed, their heart will repel and resist no matter how much pressure we put on them to be here or to read the Bible or to look to him. They have to see God. And the most difficult thing that we have as parents is that we're pointing them to something they can't see. He's a spirit. You can't say, everybody, look to your left right now. He's walking next to the wall. But what the Bible tells us is, is that though we cannot force the eyes of our children or anyone else to see God, we can point them in the right direction by pointing them to the ways of God. Moses, you remember, God comes to him in a burning bush. He sees absolutely amazing, startling, physical things in front of him. He gets to chapter 33 and he's praying to God. And this is what he prays. God, if I have found favor in your sight, then let me know your ways that I may know you. In other words, we cannot open up our kids' eyes to see God, but we can point him, point them to the way. In other words, it, it, it's like you're on a mountain. And you're looking down and you see something that's so interesting. And you go, hey, everybody, look at that thing. And they go, where, where? And you're like, well, you know, it's right there. Well, I can't, where? And so you go, okay, you see the red car way over there. Okay, all right, now you see the power lines. And all of a sudden what you're doing is you are describing the way to God. The same thing has to be done with our children. Is that you can't say there he is, but you can say that's how God acts. And all of a sudden, when they start to get a picture of the ways of God, they start to see the fingerprints of God. And when they see the fingerprints of God, God becomes very consequential to their soul. So what are some things we can do to point the way? To point the way, say, kids, there's the hero right there. There he is. One of the first things we have to do is we have to be given over to pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, for everyone in this room and for every child that you know who's yet to trust Christ, there is literally a spiritual blindfold over their eyes to where they cannot see Christ as consequential. They cannot see him as valuable. And making things worse is behind that blindfold is the hand of evil itself holding it tight. Now, there is no charisma. There's no human persuasive abilities. There's no leadership structure. There's no church. There's no music. There's nothing that can has the power to do that outside of prayer, to literally loosen the hand of evil and pull down that blindfold. 
In other words, God has given us a gift to get onto the central playing field of our kids' lives, and that is when we pray for them. And so as a church family, like it still boggles my mind. It breaks my heart every time we call for a prayer night. And this room can be full three services on Sunday morning, and it's half full. What if we just said, I'll tell you what, let's pray for our kids tonight. And just beg God to take blindfolds off of people's eyes to help them to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. We've got to pray for our kids. It's one of the ways that we point them to God. I think another way is we expose them to answer prayers. In other words, we pray with our kids or we bring the kids to the prayer meetings. And all of a sudden, they're they're confronted with the reality. We prayed for this. And then maybe you even take notes and then you come back. And later on, when it happens, when God answers a certain prayer, you say, kids, do you remember when we prayed for this? And all of a sudden, you're exposing them to the ways of God. I think a third way for us to be able to point people to the hero of the story is to literally seek to put into play an example of obedience and repentance. You see, teachers give truth and mentors give trust. And kids need truth and trust. They need someone to say, this is the right way, and they need someone to show them how to do it. And so when we say, this is how you live, and when we don't live that way, it really boggles their mind of why Jesus is so consequential if it's not consequential to you right now. And so what happens is this. The fact is we're all sinners. I'm like, well, this is, this, is, this is bad news, right? It is bad news, which is why we also need to display the ways of God in repentance, it's a humbling thing to be able to go to your eight-year-old son. Say, son, I want you to know something. Your dad cares so much about God. And God is real. And when I did that, God's conviction came upon my heart. What I did was wrong. And I'm asking you, even though you're eight and I'm not, would you forgive me? And all of a sudden, their eyes are open to, you know what? This doesn't happen normally. Normally, he explains it away. Normally, he just says, well, I'm dad. Don't worry about it. You see, when we demonstrate our faith and love and repentance, it shows the ways of God. I think another way for us to be able to point, God, point our kids to the hero is to expose them to missions. It's an unusual thing when you put your child in an airplane and then you sit next to them and you go to a place and you go to a different people where there's a different culture, where there's different ways and there's different toys and maybe there's no toys. And you see and your kids see God working in a different culture in such a different way. And yet the same fundamentals are at play and they're all trusting Jesus. And they see a joy that comes from not needing an iPhone. And all of a sudden, their eyes are exposed to the reality of, man, this is the ways of God. He's real. He's real everywhere. And then the last I would encourage is that we would seek to feed them God's word. I'm going to talk about that in the next point. So that's all I'm going to say. But the fact is, this is going to cost us. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our money. We can't do these things cheap. This kind of investment in the next generation cannot be efficient. It, it, it takes time. It takes money. 
It takes effort. It takes energy. It's hard. But if I boil everything I've said thus far, the first point is this. Kids, look, there's the hero. The second thing that he tells us that the next generation needs is the next generation must be taught the word of God. You notice in verse five, he says that God established a testimony and he appointed a law. Well, he did this on Mount Sinai where the mountain literally went ablaze with fire and all of a sudden Moses comes down with 10 commandments etched in stone. Now God's plan is not for every succeeding generation to go back to Sinai in order to get our own set of stones. So, oh, this is God's will. This is God's word. No, his plan was for it to happen once and then for those fathers to teach their children and their children and their children and their children and their children all the way down to where you have heard the gospel. Someone told you. And we're supposed to be able to pass that on ourselves. You see, God's law and his testimony, they're recorded in the Bible. So the Bible then is, is sort of like the sun in the solar system of everything that we're seeking to teach our children. All the other books and ideas and worldviews, they're all the planets that must orbit around and be judged by the light and truthfulness of this book. So we must know this book in order to teach this book. But as we begin to teach this book, what are the three things that we want to take place? He tells us in verse 6 and 7. The first thing that he tells us that we hope will take place is that our children will put their hope in God. That they'll put their hope in God. This is one of the most important things is when they put more hope in God than they put in you as their teacher. When they become more dependent upon God and more impressed with God than with what you can teach them. We want our teaching to produce confidence in God. Now I want you to just imagine like this guy who goes out and he hunts down treasures and all of a sudden he's digging He's in a cave and he finds this absolutely priceless treasure. The world is so amazed that he's found this that he travels around to different schools and universities and museums lecturing about how he found it. But he never pulls it out to show everybody for fear that its beauty would detract from his achievement in finding it. This would be utterly tragic, you see. He said, Brian, what are you trying to say? What I'm trying to say is this. When we teach the Bible, our goal is to leave others in awe of God and not in our discovery. It should be that people can go, I could find insight like that in God's word too. Because it's right there. They would leave. Our children would literally, when the book opens in the home or in the church or wherever it opens, our kids, their heart would be first inclined to what has God done instead of what does he want me to do? To be inclined to put their confidence in God and his work and his accomplishments instead of what they need to accomplish for God. We want our children to come away impressed with God. The second thing that we want to see take place in our, all of our teaching is that our children would show preference to God and obedience. He said in verse seven, did not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It's interesting that before the first commandment was given by God, God gave grace. Exodus chapter 20, verse two, the very next verse, verse three is the first commandment. In verse two, this is what he says. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this is really important for you, and it's really important as you seek to teach the next generation, is that before there's a demand, there's grace. 
Before there's an instruction, there's an accomplishment that's been made for us. I did this for you. Now in response, this is what you need to do. You see, it's interesting that we as people have always assumed that our obedience precedes acceptance. But it's actually just the opposite. There's no such thing as obedience until we're accepted. You see, Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained all this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not so that Christ will make me his own, but because Christ has made me his own. See, friends, obedience is not the price of admission. It's the overflow of being admitted. This week we went to a, well, we went to Bush Gardens where we went. And uh, we're walking in and my son, he turns to me and he says, Dad, um, are we going to have to pay for every ride? And I said, no, because your dad already paid for every ride. And he says, you mean so we can just enjoy it? Listen, friends, providence. Christ has already paid for every ride. His accomplishment on the cross and resurrection has already meant that if you've trusted him, you're totally accepted. And so you say, well, then why would we need to obey? It's because his love for us generates in us a love that says, wait a minute, that pleases you when I do that? It does. Well, if that pleases you, then my heart is inclined to want to do those things. And this is what we long for our children. And that's why when we teach God's word, we must patiently connect his instructions to his cross. Don't ever tell your kid to do something biblically without telling them what Jesus has already done for them. You see, if we will do this, we'll raise a generation who live out of the overflow of God in their heart. And if we don't, we'll raise a generation of moralists who find themselves disillusioned and tired of being good. They've got to see that all obedience is in response to someone else's accomplishments. And the third thing that we want to see take place in our teaching is that children will grow up to teach their children. We see this in verse 6. When he says the next generation might know them and and arise and tell them to their children. So it's a relay race. Jesus passed the baton to his disciples and they pass it to one generation and to the next, to the next, all the way down to us. We cannot meander in the crowd with the baton. We have to pass it to the next generation. Whether you have kids or not, you have something you can give. And so two applications. First is let's prepare and position ourselves to teach God's word. You see, it's okay if you do not have a plan today how to teach the Bible to your kids. But don't let that be the case six months from now. If you're listening to all this and says, wow, I've never heard this. Or maybe you have, but God's just pressing on your heart and saying, you know, this is something that needs to take place in my life. You say, but I don't know what to do. It's it's okay. It really is okay. What I would encourage you to do is to prepare to get ready so that you do have a plan. 
talk to me, talk to our pastors, talk to people sitting right next to you and say, how have you done this? Is there a book that you've gone through? Is there a kid's Bible that you would recommend? When do you do this? Is this a breakfast, a dinner, bedtime? When? And fine, learn, learn how to do this. See, when our kids were little, we would sing a song and then we would read something from God's word and we'd kind of draw out sort of a life lesson that was anchored to the gospel. And then I would try to tell a story, right? Now, I'm a bad storyteller, but the fact is, is they, they love stories. And so we had these fictitious firemen. They were adventure setters. Their name were Sam and Roger. And every, every night, almost every night, I would read something and then I'd go, okay, I got to find something about patience or this. And I would just kind of weave whatever we were reading into the story. They were terrible stories, but they loved them, right? And then we would pray. Now what we normally do is we just read a passage. I mean, sometimes it's a sentence, sometimes it's a paragraph. I'll put it down and I go, so what do you guys think? We just talk about it and then we pray. And I just confess to you, at neither time have we done it perfectly. At no time of our life have we ever been perfectly consistent. It's one of my regrets, to be totally honest with you. We've done it the great majority of their days, but we've not done it as much as we could have. And God's grace continues to pour, and so we're very, very thankful for that. You see, parents have this primary responsibility, and I would even say to that that fathers have the primary responsibility within the family so long as the father is there. You say, well, why? Well, because he keeps talking to fathers that it's their primary responsibility. You say, well, why is that? Well, I think it's because of this. God gives a home, a mom and a dad, and a mom is the greatest display of love on the earth. And a dad is supposed to be the greatest display of strength. To a young kid, nobody's stronger and cooler than dad. And if they never see their strong dad open up a stronger Bible, then they start wondering, who's the hero? We've got to point them to the hero. And so we've got to open up the word. So it starts in the family, but then the church family also has a calling to assist the parents, to confirm the teachings of what they're hearing in the home, but then also to help those, chair, those kids whose parents may not be here or who may not be being faithful in their duties. And you guys know, we've made the appeal many times here at Providence that our very best need to be with our children. I believe that. I don't believe that we can be faithful to God's call upon our life until we take care of our kids. And we still are in need. And so I would just encourage to ask you, would you consider positioning yourself and your giftedness in that area for the next ministry year? Would you consider that? And the last thing that I want to highlight as an application is let's rest in the gospel. Let's rest in the gospel. You see, all of Psalm 78 are the great and mighty deeds of the Lord, but there's only one that's the greatest. And the greatest took place in a three-day period where Jesus literally gave up his life and died on a cross. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And when he did that, he provided a way for forgiveness. He invited a way for us to be able to be justified and made righteous before him, but also to be brought into his family. And then the gospel is the very message that literally gives us confidence to know that we're already approved. And when we know that we're already approved, we do not hijack our parenting to find approval. You see, the gospel frees us from insecurity of needing our child's approval, leading to a lack of discipline. But the gospel also frees us from needing our children to be perfect before the eyes of others, leading to too much discipline. 
It's the gospel that gives us the basis to be able to forgive one another, but also to confess our sins to one another. And so as a church family and as families, we've got to be resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you so much for the gift of children and for the 500 children who call Providence their home and their families. We just say thank you that you have entrusted us with such riches. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful. We pray, God, that as we take a moment to even pause or to give an offering, but also to give an offering with with our lips as we sing to you, that moment of silence where we just get to listen. God, I pray that if there's anything that you would want us to apply or learn or repent of that's come from your word, I pray that you would use this time to bring it to the forefront of our attention and help us to be faithful with what you give us. You've been so good to us. We love you and we thank you for your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.